This is the Byron Bledsoe Podcast, Senior Pastor of C3 Church in Orlando, Florida. Thank you so much for checking out today's message. We hope this word encourages you and inspires you. Let's jump into the message. Pray, amen. Amen. God bless you. Please be seated. Hey, if today is your first time, welcome to C3. We are thrilled that you're hanging out with us this morning, and we want you to know that in the life of C3, you really do matter. Your future is our focus. In fact, when you came this morning, if you missed the red tent right outside the doors, uh, please be sure and stop by there after the service because we have a free gift for every first-time guest. Speaking of gifts, I wanted to ask you this question this morning. What is the greatest gift you've ever received? Like as you think about your life, as you look back over your life, what is the greatest gift? Is there one that just sort of stands out above everything else? Two things come to mind for me. One of them is uh, Angie, a year or two ago, gave me on my birthday this notebook that she had written in from time to time, over time, different memories or different notes from her, different things about our, our life together. And it is incredibly special to me. Greatest gift I've ever been given. Second thing, we do something on birthdays in our home where when it's someone's birthday, we go around the table and everybody says one thing they love about the person whose birthday it is. Um, and I think we should start letting the person say one thing they love about themselves too, but <laughs> I don't know. But anyway, those two things are just incredibly special. So I don't know what it is for you, but as you think about your life, what's the greatest gift you've ever been given? And I think another question I have to ask, if we're going to ask that first question, we've got to ask the second question, it is this, what is the greatest gift you've ever given? Because we, we love being on the receiving end, but, but giving, what, what's the greatest gift you've ever given? Now, I've got to tell you, for me, I am terrible at giving gifts. Like, it, it's not that I, I don't want to. I think about it, I try, and I, I try to figure it out, but I just suck pond water at it. Like, I remember, I don't remember if it was your first birthday or first Christmas, we'd gotten married, and I, I bought, I, I went to the store and I bought, I, I really tried to think, okay, what would she like, and you know, what would she look good in? Everything, but what, what would she like? And I tried to figure that out and I bought several different outfits and guys, guys, let me just tell you, first couple years of marriage, don't buy clothes. Like just don't, don't do that. I brought that home and I was like, here, babe, here's what I got you. And she was very kind about it. She was very nice about it, but everything went back. <laughs> like she kept nothing. I mean, they convinced me to buy the, the, the skirt for her and it was, it was pleather. And I didn't know what that meant. I thought, well, leather, they added a letter. There's a P on the front. They added to it. It's got to be better. Maybe that's some French thing, pleather. I don't, it's plastic. But <laughs> everything went back. But when I get it right, listen, I'm so bad at it when I get it right. It's like the second coming of Jesus for me. Like we were in the store yesterday and Andrew's looking for something. And so when I know she's looking for something, I'll try to like go ahead of her and try to, okay, can I find it? Because if I can pick it, that'd be awesome if I can find what she's looking for. And I found this thing that I thought she would like. And she looked at it and said, oh, I love it. And she put it in the basket. And that was just like freaking awesome. And then two hours over, it got put on the shelf because she found something else. But that's just the story of my life. I'm not very good at, at, at giving gifts. But there's a question that goes even further. And it's this question. What is the greatest gift you've ever given God? I'm not talking about financially. I'm just talking about in life. 
And some people would say, man, I've, I've really tried to focus on praying more, and I, I, I know that pleases God. Or some people, man, I, I'm really trying to be kind to unkind people. I'm, I'm trying to be more Christ-like in, in my approach with people, and that's, that's got to please God. But the greatest gift that you could ever give God is yourself. And it is mind-blowing to me, because I know me, that God wants me, that God wants you. We've come to Romans chapter 12. If, if you're new to C3 this morning, we're studying the book of Romans, and part of the reason we're doing that is Romans does such a, a great job. It's a book of theology, which is doctrine. It's what we believe. It's important to know what we believe, but I think it's really important to know why we believe it. And Romans does such a great job of saying, this is who God is, this is who we are, and this is what we do about it. And chapters 1 through 11, there's this huge focus on, here's who God is, here's how messed up and broken we are, which is not a secret, and here's the condition, the reality that we can't do anything to help ourselves. God did everything through Jesus to be able to work in our lives and help us. But in chapter 12, there's a shift that takes place. Chapter 12 looks at chapters 1 through 11 and says, so what? In light of chapters 1 through 11, how do we live? Like, how is this practical? I know we talk about it on Sunday, but what does it look like on Monday or Thursday? How does this translate in my marriage or, or through my parenting or in my friendships or how I view life or as I deal with conflict and struggle, how do I do this? And the first two verses of chapter 12, if we don't get this down, you'll never discover God's purpose for your life. Did you know you can live an entire life and miss your purpose? And these two verses are essential. They help us know the value of living God's purpose for our lives. So Paul says, here's what's next. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, in light of chapters 1 through 11, because of that, therefore, I urge you, brothers, and that word urge right there, it's in the most compelling, aggressive way. Like, you, you, you've got to do this. Don't miss this. You're going to miss out on a whole dimension of life that elevates life if you miss this. I urge you, brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters is important. It's biblical language for spiritual family. In other words, this is to people who are Christ followers. Maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christ follower. Man, you came on a great day because you're gonna get a very transparent look at what life is supposed to be like as a Christ follower and what scripture teaches about how we're supposed to live. And one of the things that we do in church sometimes that is not helpful at all is if we're not careful, we can start expecting people who don't know Jesus to live like they do. So everything he's about to lay out in these two verses is for Christ followers. In view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, this is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test what is approved test and approve what, it, what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. That, that phrase, your true and proper worship. When you think of the word worship, what do you think about? 
See, I think there's some worship myths that we've sort of bought into. And so I want to knock those down this morning. One of the worship myths that, that if we're not careful, we can believe is worship is only for Christ followers. Did you know that's not true? Did you know every single one of us are wired to worship something? Like for a long time, I worshiped the Dallas Cowboys and I've discovered it's a false God. And I don't know that there's any hope. But, but some people, listen, we're wired to work. What, what is worship? It is giving primary attention to, most of my focus to, the pursuit of my life to, and my attention to this. And so we worship. Some people worship themselves. Some people worship their spouse or who they're dating. Some people worship at the altar of success, and they, they chase that, and they, they pour their lives into that. But we all worship because we're designed to worship. Now, any worship less than worshiping the one true God that invites us to call him Father, any worship less than that is called idolatry, and it doesn't work. But that's a myth sometimes we believe worship is only for Christians. Another myth that we believe about worship is that it starts and stops. It doesn't. Worship is not something you and I do for an hour on Sunday. Worship is every breath of every day, of every week, of every month, of every year of my life. I am constantly worshiping. The issue is, what or who am I worshiping? But it's not something that starts and stops. There, there is constantly in my life, in your life, the pursuit of, the chasing after, the attention to, the focus on. And sometimes that changes day by day, sometimes moment by moment. But worship does not start and stop. Another worship myth, some people say, oh, worship, that, that's a genre of music. No, it's not. Every now and then we'll do songs that, that speak to a message we're going to be talking about that are, that are secular songs, songs that are popular. Some of my favorites are songs from the 80s. We've not done, we've not done Beastie Boys yet, but I want to try it sometime. But, but Van Halen, Guns N' Roses, I'm about all of that. I'm cool with any of it. Let's do it. But uh, worship, listen. The reality is it's not a genre of music. I don't like it when you sing those secular songs. You do understand there are no songs that are saved, right? Like it's music. And sometimes we classify it as a worship genre because we limit what worship is in our lives when we think of it as only music. Yes, it's music and music is important. And the reality is as you come into this room and we enter a time of corporate worship together, we're not singing about God, we're singing to God and nobody can worship God for you. God chases and wants your worship, and nobody can replace you in that. So it's not that that's not important, it's just that that's not all that worship is. Worship is how you treat your spouse. Worship is how you raise your kids. Worship is how you treat the person that's not nice to you. Worship, worship is how you drive on I-4. Yes, worship is every moment of my life as a follower of Jesus because the Bible says everything that I do in life, I'm supposed to do as though I'm doing it to and for Jesus. So worship is beyond that. And I'm afraid that so often we limit it and we, we put it in a context. We are great at putting things in boxes and throwing labels on it. But worship is a moment by moment way of life. Another worship myth, worship is for women and children but not real men. Listen, can I just talk to guys for a second? Especially dads and husbands. There is nothing greater you can do. There is no greater gift 
that you can give your family than to be a man of worship. Worshiping God and being a man of God. Because one of the greatest things our world needs right now is men of God. And do not be ashamed to be who God created you to be. You're a man. You're made in the image of God. And culture may think you're insignificant. And culture may say you're unimportant. And you may get bashed at every turn. Who gives a flying rip? You're made in the image of God. You be the man God has called you to be in your relationships for your family. You learn how to lead in a way that honors God. And you learn how to lead in a way that honors your spouse and your kids. And part of that is setting a pace and an example and creating a legacy of worship on Sunday morning and throughout the week. One of my earliest memories as a kid. I would wake up early because as a little kid, I didn't know that every day wasn't Saturday. And I wanted to see the Roadrunner and Yosemite Sam and cartoons that are like ancient. You don't even know about them unless you're my age or older. But I'd wake up early to go watch cartoons and I'd walk in the family room and, and it never didn't happen. I would see my dad sitting in a chair reading his Bible. That did something in me. My dad's not perfect. He'd be the first to tell you that. But my dad is an amazing father. But a lot of what he was able to pour out into me and our family was poured into him from his times of private worship with God as he was studying the word of God and God nourishing his soul and giving him, giving him the strength that he would need to navigate that day, this life, and any circumstances. Guys, it's important. Sir, nobody can replace you in your home. And nobody can replace your worship. But, but these two verses, if you grew up in church, we're, we're pretty familiar with them. Like we, we understand the context. They're common if you grew up in church. Years ago, Angie and I, our, our marriage was falling apart. Many of you, if you've been at C3, you know the story. We separated. We were filing for divorce. It was done. And there was a counselor that said to me, she doesn't hear what you're saying. And part of that was because she knows who I am. Like she sees all the weaknesses, she sees all the faults. And sometimes it takes somebody else sharing truth for someone to really grab it. And sometimes for us to really get it, it takes, it takes hearing it in a different way. And on Sundays, I use the New International Version. One of the most common questions I'm asked is, hey, what, 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 what translations should I read? If I want to read the Bible, what, what translation? I, I use the New International Version, in part because that's what I've always studied. Uh, there's some great translations out there, but it's important to understand. This is going to feel a little bit like an information dump, but it's really important to grasp if you're going to study the Word of God. The New International Version is a translation. So Old Testament, Hebrew, New Testament, Greek, the New International Version is a phrase-by-phrase -phrase translation of the original text. So you get the concepts, you get it down, but it's in a language we can understand. Then there are translations or, or versions like the New American Standard Version. The New American Standard Version is not a translation, it's a transliteration. It means it's literally a word-for-word -word translation. So you have New International Version, phrase translation, New American Standard, word-for-word -word transliteration, and then you have what are called paraphrases. 
they're not, they're not translations. They're, they're summaries like the Living Bible or the Message. Those are paraphrases. They're, they're great to read. They, they can add context. But it's not what you want to build your life studying because it's not literally a translation. But the message, and you always need to check with the translation or transliteration to make sure it communicates the same thing. The message version of Romans 12, 1 and 2. I think captures it because sometimes we just need to hear it in a different way. Romans 12, verse 1, the message. So in light of chapters 1 through 11, so here's what I want you to do. God helping you because you can't do it alone. Take your everyday ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. I think, I think about where we are as a culture and I think about where the church, not just our church, churches, where the church is. Don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings the best out of you, develops well-formed maturity in you. If you want to experience your best life, it's going to take God bringing the best out of you, and that happens when we live in the context of these two verses. Verse 2, don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without thinking. Paul is literally saying, the Holy Spirit inspiring Paul, literally saying, stop. Stop being so well-adjusted to your culture. It, it just comes naturally. There is this thing in us. We are wired and designed. There's something about humanity. There's this longing to fit in, and we just we drift into whatever's acceptable and whatever's taking place and whatever the majority of people are thinking or doing. It's only after you fix your attention on God that you'll be changed from the inside out. That there's a renewing of the mind that must take place. And if you do this, later in life you'll look in the rearview mirror of life and you will have discovered that living a life that honors Jesus is second to none. Because in that life there's nothing missing. In that life it is the most complete life you can live. Now, there's a phrase I want to draw your attention to because I think it's important and I want to do it by asking you this question. What does it mean to place your life before God as an offering? What, what does that mean? Because remember, the Holy Spirit inspires Paul to write this letter to the church at Rome, but when they're hearing this letter, they're hearing it read to them. Nobody's following along in their Bible, they're hearing it read. And, and they were very familiar with New International Version, sacrifice, message, paraphrase, an offering. They're, they're very familiar with what that means. They know that context. So what does it mean as you place your life before God as an offering? It means to be totally committed to doing whatever God wants me to do. Are you totally committed to doing whatever God wants you to do? It means God gets my yes before he even asks the question. I want to live a life 
and I want to walk in the kind of faith that whatever God asks me to do, it's a yes before he even asks. Whether I agree or not, whether it's uncomfortable or not, whether I think it's the best option or not, and whether, whether culture agrees with or not. A living sacrifice, an offering. Everybody hearing this letter read instantly thought about the Old Testament because before Jesus, you could not come to a worship service and experience corporate worship together without bringing a sacrifice. And when you brought a sacrifice, there, there had to be some type of sacrifice offered so that you would be made right with God. And in those sacrifices, they knew Old Testament, you give God your all and you give God your best. That's what you bring. Like, it, it's not an option to say, well, we've got about 12 sheep out there and one of them only has three legs, let's take that one. No, you bring your best the most unblemished, the, the best that you have, your first and your best. There was, no, there was no kind of offering that could be offered. There, there was no kind of sacrifice that was acceptable that was kind of a halfway less than sacrifice. You had to bring your all and you had to bring your best. And listen, we know that in life. I was a junior in high school. I grew up in Texas and I played football. And as a junior in high school, I'll, I'll never forget this game. We were playing against Little Cypress Mauriceville, which means nothing to you but everything to me. And this game, we were winning. And it was toward the end of the game and I was playing offense and defense. So I was on the field the whole time and they were kicking off to us. I was on the kickoff return team. So the ball was kicked and everybody on the front line runs back kind of to the center of the field, forms kind of a wall and you start running forward so the guy with the ball can follow that. There's a guy on the other team running at me. It's toward the end of the game. We're winning. The score's big enough. They're not coming back. And he was about, he was about six inches shorter than me. Now, I'm not tall. I know that's a shock to you. I'm not tall. I'm just wound tight. But, but he's running at me, and he's six inches shorter, and I decided, eh, I'm not going to knock this guy's lights out. So I sort of halfway braced. He cleaned my clock. It's the hardest I've ever been hit in my life. I remember seeing something like that, and then I remember waking up on the sideline smelling bad stuff. Like, he, he knocked me for a loop because I approached it with a halfway mentality. Listen, when you approach your spiritual life in a halfway sort of way, you're gonna get knocked on your rear. See, Jesus is working in me, I'm growing, it's awesome. You, you can't live your best. You're gonna get hit, damaged, hurt, and you're gonna wake up somewhere else and wonder what the heck just happened to me. And it's because you brought a halfway attitude. I, I want just enough Jesus to get me to heaven and I want just enough Jesus, God bless my family. I want just enough Jesus to keep my kids well and God help them get into good schools. I want just enough Jesus for all that, but I, I, I don't wanna offer my life as an offering, a living sacrifice, give my yes to God about anything he asked me to do. I don't wanna go that far. That's radical. No, what's radical is your sin and mine. And what's radical is the price God had to pay to give us an opportunity to call him father by giving his son to die for us. And what's ridiculous is how we settle for such a less than life because we would rather worship anything, including ourselves, other than giving our full worship to God.
You bring your all and you bring your best. You bring your best in the argument with your spouse. You bring your best in the conflict with your neighbor. You bring your best as a follower of Jesus to the problem at the office or the decisions in your finances or setting a legacy in your home where you prioritize the local church in attending and investing and serving and praying for and inviting to. We give our all and we give our best. But there's another phrase, I, I need to ask a question. What does it mean to become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking? You look at our culture right now. I told somebody this morning, I, I don't know. Sometimes I feel like I'm just getting old and I'm not, I'm really young. But, but sometimes I feel like, I feel like, man, the way you're thinking right now, you, you, you sound like old people that just fuss about things. Do you ever think, like, if, if, you're, if you're in your 40s or 50s, I'm 50, none of your business, but if you're, if you're at that age, you start looking around at culture and society, and you start thinking, what the heck is going on? We've lost our freaking minds. Like, we're, 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 we're being told we have to believe stuff that we know is not true. And we're supposed to just fall in line. Like, we've lost our minds. And it's very easy. It's very easy in this kind of culture for us as Christ followers to think, well, I'm not like that. I'm not that bad. I, I, I don't think like that. I, I, I don't do that. And we give ourselves a pass because we see some things happening and we think, well, at least I'm not like that. That's not the issue. The issue is, do you love your wife differently than someone who doesn't know Jesus loves their wife? The issue is, do you argue differently than someone who doesn't know Jesus argues? The issue is, the mindset that you bring to your stuff, your possessions and your money, is it the same as the mindset of people who don't even know Jesus? Because their mindset is, it's mine. But it's not. What, what does it mean to be well-adjusted to our culture in a way that we fit into it without even thinking? Here's literally what it means. It means I take my values, my standards, and my priorities from the world around me. I take my values, what's morally right. I take my standards, what's right and wrong. And I take my priorities, what comes first in my life, from the world around me. And Paul says, stop thinking like that because the reason he says stop is because we're doing this. We're, we're wired to do this. We take our values and standards and priorities from the world around us. We, there's something about us. We drift into what everybody else says is okay. I, I can prove it to you. Have you ever seen a, a yearbook, a high school yearbook from the 1970s? The way people cut their hair, like nobody had a friend to tell them, no, bro, that doesn't look good. But everybody did it. The, the way they dressed. Did you know it was a fad in the 70s to have orange shag carpet in your house? Or if you were really upper class, green and orange shag carpet in your house. And everybody did it. Like we just drift into what everybody, and, and we look back and we think, what were you thinking? Well, I was just doing what everybody else did. 10 years ago, nobody knew the word barn dominium. But we run to that. 
And if you look at like decorating, if you ever look at Pinterest, female prison, if you ever look at Pinterest, and, 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 and I don't know anything about Pinterest, and Angie has said to me, hey, if you want to know what I like, look at my Pinterest, and I don't even know how to do that. But every now and then, every now and then, I'll look over her shoulder, and like, everybody, I mean, the fad where, okay, everything in your kitchen's got to be gray. In the 70s and 80s, the stuff was to have carpet in your house, so everybody had carpet. And then we're like, no, that creates allergies. We don't want carpet, so now it's tile, or maybe tile that looks like wood, or maybe wood, or, or luxury plank vinyl, and whatever the thing is, what, how everybody, everybody's doing and redoing their home. Oh my gosh, we gotta do that. We gotta be like everybody else. Because we're wired like that. We don't even have to think. We do that by just breathing. So he's saying, hey, stop. You've got to bring some intentionality to your life. You are not going to accidentally fall into a better life. You're not going to accidentally fall into spiritual growth. These are things you've got to think about and you've got to, on purpose, deliberately bring to your life. It's not just your style. It's the core of who we are. And often, if we don't think about it and we're not intentional about it, the culture determines more of who we are than our Christ does. The Spirit of God through Paul is literally saying, you've got to be intentional. You've got to be aware of how often you do this and how much it's impacting you. You don't even realize it. You don't even know that you're doing it. When I first started preaching, uh, Angie said, listen, when, when, you, when you preach, and she's very helpful and, and tries to offer some helpful things, and she's very careful not to do that on Monday because every Monday I think, I can't believe I said some of that stuff. And so she lets me get through Monday, and then by Tuesday she's like, hey, I got a couple thoughts, and, and then I'm ready to receive it. And one of the things she would tell me is, do you know when, when you preach, you, you lick your lips a lot? And I got kind of defensive. I was like, I don't do that. I don't do that at all. What are you talking about? Calling me lizard man. I don't lick my lips. I mean, like, maybe you're just extra sensitive to every now and then my lips are dry, and I might need to do that. But I'll do it. And then, then, then I saw a video. And it was ridiculous. Like, if it would have been possible, I would have left my church. And so I had to bring some intentionality. I don't know if I still do it a lot or not. I have no idea. But I really worked really, really hard to bring some intentionality to thinking about thinking while I was speaking, which is very hard because for me, honestly, the most terrifying thing in the world is standing in front of people and talking. Like I almost throw up four times every Sunday morning. It's terrifying. So anything good that happens, that's just Jesus because I'm scared to death. But the reality is I had to bring intentionality to know I, I need to stop that. I can't keep doing that. that that's going to be detrimental to trying to communicate. I am from Texas and you can tell because I told you, and maybe you can tell a little bit, but I don't have the accent like them people in Texas do, because I worked hard to change my accent because I used to travel and speak in a lot of different states. And one of the things I've discovered is a lot of people in other th states think Southern dialect equals dumb. <laughs> they just do, and it's not true, I promise. But you can't tell as much, but you have to bring intentionality. You have to be deliberate in the areas that you want to change. Change will not accidentally happen. And you will live like people that don't know Jesus and you will think like people that don't know Jesus and you will make decisions like people that don't know Jesus and you will view your life and other people and even God like people that don't know Jesus if you're not intentional. Why is that such a big deal? Because the values and standards and priorities of the world 
reflect the lies of your enemy. The Bible says each of us have an enemy. His name is Satan. And for every great thing God has, Satan has a counterfeit that's not great. And culture, have you ever noticed, culture seems to have such a pushback to the word of God that is old-fashioned and outdated and not true and doesn't work. And because of that, it has another option. And if you're not careful, when you live like people that don't know Christ, and you make decisions like people that don't know Christ, and you think like people that don't know Christ, you're building your life, your family, and your legacy on a foundation of lies. It's counterfeit. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4 says, The God of this age, speaking of Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And then Ephesians chapter 2 says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. What does all that mean? It means if you're a follower of Jesus, at one time you were in the enemy's camp and you didn't even know it. And this drift to embrace culture over Christ, it's not just in culture. It also happens in the church. We, as Christ followers, believe that Jesus is God. We worship Jesus. He's the one who saves us from our sin. He loves us. He forgives us. He empowers us. It's Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Jesus is our Lord. Jesus is our God. We believe in Jesus. We worship Jesus. Jesus is God. But there are some things that even in the church are bigger than Jesus to us. Some things that we have allowed the thinking of culture to impact our thinking, and without even thinking about it, we believe in a way that is less than what God intended. There are gods in our culture that we've accepted and adjusted to without even thinking about it. I'll give you just one. Jesus is God, but often he comes in second place even in the lives of church people, to the God of potential. As parents, it's hard. Man, parenting, our, our kids are grown, and one of the things I'm discovering is you never stop being dad, and you never stop being mom. And it changes, the, but the only, thing, the only thing you really have as a parent, I'm going to give you the secret right here. The only thing you have as a parent is influence. And a lot of parents chase friendship over influence. And we chase the God of potential. My son, he's, he's uniquely gifted. And so we've decided we're, we're going to we're going to pay extra and he's going to be on all the travel teams he can and we're going to pour into this because we don't want him to miss his potential and it comes from a great place. Or I, 
My daughter, she, she can't be at C3 Students on Wednesday night. She has a test on Thursday. And you know, her grades are important. You know, one of the things I've learned, once you hit about 25 years old, nobody asks you what your grades were. Like, done. It's in the past. It's not that it's not important. It's just not the most important. Well, listen, we, we've taken on some extra jobs, so we, we can't plug into a local church, and we can't, we can't serve people, love God, love others. We, we can't really do that. we got extra jobs because we want our kid to get into this college. English 101 is English 101. But we, want, we, we don't want them to miss their potential because if they go to that college, oh, my gosh, they got to be there. And we, we spend our lives coming from a good place, motivated by love for our kids, wanting, them, wanting our kids to reach their full potential in every area of life except their spiritual character. We know what you're doing for your kids' sports. We know what you're doing for your kids' education. We know what you're doing for your kids' friendships and relationships. We, we know everything you're doing. You're going the extra mile. What are you doing to develop them spiritually? What are they learning about Jesus from you? Not their pastor, their student pastor, their church. What are they learning about how to live a life that honors God from you? What are they learning about priorities and where Jesus fits in in that? And where the local church, which is what the Bible says Jesus died for, fits in in that? Where, where are they learning that? And what are they learning from you? Because you can say Jesus is your God all day long, but when you elevate something else above him and you put a greater focus on other things, you diminish in the minds of your children what you really think about Jesus without even knowing we've done it. Let me give you a third one. What does it mean, that, by the way, that was free. You don't have to add anything to the offering for that, parents. That was free. What does it mean, what does it mean to have well-formed maturity in you? It happens, this is when I live life at the level that God knows I can live life. Listen, God created us. He knows best how to live life. He was the creator of life, the creator of marriage. Parenting was his idea. Family was his idea. He knows how to do it better than anybody else. He is the only expert when it comes to how to do that. And what's amazing is for thousands of years, he's never been wrong. I've never met anybody that applied the principles of the word of God to their marriage, their parenting, their lives, their finances, their future, their purpose. I've never met anybody that did that and said, it didn't work. Man, I, I wish instead of doing this, I, I would have been unfaithful to my wife. I wish instead of doing this, I wouldn't have worried about being consistent with my kids. I would, it, it's never happened. God has always been right. And, and so this maturity that comes happens when I align my values, my standards, and my priorities with the Word of God. The Word of God is the standard. It is not culture. Nobody gets to decide that what God wrote doesn't apply anymore. God says what he means. He means what he says. He knows that it's a universal truth. It works for all time in all places. It's the word of God. And you've got to decide for you, do you build your life on it or not? I would submit to you, if you've decided, hey, there are some things in the word of God that, that I'll live my life based on, but other things, I'm not going to worry about that. Just throw the whole thing out. You get to decide what's really from God and what's not. You get to decide what really applies today and what doesn't. Like, do you think God's like, I'm shocked. I had no idea in 2022 people would be reading my words still. I'm amazed. I would have changed some things.
every now and then I have to take my car in to get the alignment done because I am an expert at finding potholes and bumps in the road. Like it's a gift. I've got a PhD in it. And so uh, every now and then, and, and railroad tracks that are more like launching pads, I, I just, I find them. And so every now and then I have to take my car in to get the alignment fixed because as I'm driving day by day, I'll notice without any help from me, it just starts drifting to the right or drifting to the left. Spiritually, you got to have your alignment checked. Because every now and then, without even knowing it, without even helping, you'll come to the place where you've hit enough bumps and enough potholes in life that you'll begin to drift. Did God really say? Does God really mean? Do we have to really obey? Is this really important? I'm not sure. Maybe later we'll get to that. Right now it's just really busy. This is a spiritual alignment that you've got to evaluate. Do you know, do you know the lyrics better than you know the Lord? Do you know your position better than you know God's promises? Do you stand on your perspective or do you stand on his presence? See, I want to know what God says and I want to do what God says. And scripture says you'll be changed from the inside out. Do I have any part in that transformation? I mean, I know God initiates it, God does it, God's the one that does the changing from the inside out, but, but what is my responsibility? What is my part? I read some thoughts this week that I thought might be helpful. Number one, remember it begins with a choice to give God a chance. Everything begins with a choice. And you've got to decide, do you want Jesus, if you want to live this living sacrifice, offer my life as an offering before God, as an act of worship, you've got to decide, do you want Jesus, do you want Jesus to be your Lord or your consultant? If he's my Lord, everything he asks me to do, I say yes. Like it or not, agree or not, uncomfortable or not, Everything I do because I trust him because he knows best. He's my Lord. He's in charge of my life and as best I can, I want the default position of my life to be saying yes to what God asked me to do, even if I don't like it. That's, that's Lord. If he's your consultant, you want him in your life. You want him around you and you, you want his opinion on things. I want to know what the word of God says about stuff. But ultimately, you're just going to take it under advisement. And if you like it and agree with it, yes. If you don't, you'll decide you're going to do it a different way. And without even realizing it, there are a lot of people that say, I'm a follower of Jesus, when really he, he's just your consultant. You're not on the journey following him. He's on the journey with you, you think, occasionally giving his input, but you decide what you're going to do about life. It begins with a choice to give God a chance. Number two, Input always determines output. Input always determines output. You, you know the phrase, garbage in, garbage. Okay, come on. Garbage in, garbage. Yeah, you know the phrase. The places I go, the friends I have, the conversations I'm a part of, my playlist in my tunes or my shows. Input always determines output. What are you nourishing your life with? What do I watch and read? And is it helpful or hurtful in my spiritual life? Who do I spend time with? And when I spend time with people that are not Christ followers, who's influencing who? Who am I seeking to impress? And is it helping or hurting me? And then let me give you the final one. Flee what will harm you, feed what will help you. Flee what will harm you, feed what will help you. Flee. 
In Timothy, it says, flee youthful lust. And it's not talking about just sexual. It's talking about anything that, that draws us in that's against the plan God has for our lives or would create a, a less than life in our lives. Every single day, we decide what we chase and what we ignore. Flee what will harm you. Feed what will help you. So here's what I want you to do. God helping you. Take your everyday ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. And don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. Be deliberate. Bring some intentionality. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. It's interesting to me, in the word of God, God can say anything he wants to say. And instead of saying, and respond to it, he says, and quickly. Like, like I want a fast yes in my life to what God asked me to do. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings the best out of you. God brings the best out of you. Only God can bring the best out of you, in you, and through you, and develops well-formed maturity in you. And when you do this, when you live your life as a living sacrifice, an offering for God, and you prioritize and recognize worship is moment by moment every single day, who I'm putting first, what I'm focusing on. And when I bring intentionality to my spiritual life, here's what's going to happen. You'll, you'll get to the end of your life and God will get a five-star review on Yelp from you because you'll see that he is faithful and he delivers on his promises and you captured everything about this life and God's purpose for your life. You, you lived every ounce of it but that's the only way you do it. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this morning. And God, I thank you for every single person in this room. I pray for those specifically right now, Father, that don't know you in a personal way, that you would draw them. With heads bowed and eyes closed, maybe you're here this morning and you've never committed your life to Jesus. You know that the greatest need in your life is to know God in a personal way, to have your sins forgiven, to have the Spirit of God living inside you. God loves you, God likes you, and God wants to know you in a personal way. You and I have in this life the opportunity to have an intimate, personal, daily relationship with the living God who invites us to call him Father. And that happens by giving our lives to Jesus. And so with heads bowed and eyes closed, if you'd like to do that this morning, and I can't think of a better day to do it, and I cannot think of a single reason not to. If you've never committed your life to Christ, I want to encourage you to pray this simple prayer. You can pray it out loud or you can pray it in the quietness of your heart. The Bible says in Matthew 6, Jesus knows even our thoughts. So you just pray this prayer, dear God, I know that I need you. Jesus, please come into my life, forgive my sin, and help me to live for you. As best I know how, I commit my life to you. In Jesus' name, amen.
Hey, thank you so much for checking out C3 online. And if you prayed that prayer with me, I'd love to know that. I wanna invite you just to shoot me a text with just your first name, send that to 407-487-8311. The reason I do that is I'll get a list of names this evening and I would love to be praying for you by name this week. And then also I wanna thank those of you that are part of C3 for your faithful generosity. Whether you text C3 Orlando to 77977, or you mail, check in, however you invest. When you invest in C3 Church, you're investing in life change. And the last thing is, we would love to see you in the room next Sunday. If you're in Central Florida, join us at 9.30 or 11. Have an amazing week. God bless you.